You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. All right. I am Michelle Camayo. I'm the compliance leader here at Bold Plan. I work with employers on a daily basis, having these practical discussions. So because I can have these practical discussions and sort of, you know, weigh in the business risk with maybe um, having to be compliant versus what you really want, I'm not giving legal advice. And no one on the call today is giving legal advice. I want to make that very clear. We want to make sure that you also know that we could have emerging guidance on this topic. In fact, we certainly hope we will have more guidance and more FAQs on this topic. So be diligent in your updates in the next, you know, 30 to 60 days. Generally, the objective of Camayo's Compliance Talk, uh, which is what you're listening to right now, is to help employers address and solve compliance concerns and issues. So Ask Michelle was created to answer the questions that are most meaningful to you, our audience members. So we do appreciate when you use that questions pane because we're here to answer your specific questions. And normally I will start out with a few updates in the compliance world and then we'll just get to answering your questions. Today, you will see special slide on the screen because we have a special episode with two featured guests. We have Kathy Cruel Maynard, founder of KKM Leadership, and Larry Comp, president of LTC Performance Strategies. Larry is a well-known total compensation expert that we use here at Bolton. And you may have heard of him and several of us probably know him. And you also may know Kathy, who focuses on human capital solutions and leadership development. They're going to walk us through the highlights of the legal requirements of SB 1162, but they'll spend the majority of time focused on bringing a unique perspective to this legislation. Now, hopefully you had a chance to attend the Fisher Phillips webinar last week, where one of our past guest speakers, Nicole Cam, was joined by her team, and they reviewed the legal requirements in depth. And if you're on that webinar, you know some of the answers were, were well, it's unclear. And we really, really hope that the, uh, the facts and guidance is released soon. And we may have some of those answers for you today as well, because they have not issued any more guidance or FAQs on the topic that they did um, prior to Nicole, Cam, and Fisher Phillips' webinar last week. On the webinar last week, Fisher Phillips closed out the webinar with a slide, and they said, potential issues to keep in mind. And, and the slide then had some bullet points, tight labor market, employee relations, equity issues. Those are the things that Fisher Phillips said, okay, employers want to keep this in mind as they look at compliance with the new pay transparency law. And our discussion today is going to touch on these broader implications as we look at this from a more holistic perspective. So yes, we will be talking about the legal, uh, legal compliance requirements, highlighting them, I should say, but we'll also be focusing on this really unique perspective that's just as important. 
I do want to say first, if you need a refresher on the legal requirements that you don't get today, Bolton is hosting another webinar December 6th. So it's a 30-minute webinar, which might be uh, really helpful. It's on December 6th, and it's going to be a roadmap. It's going to create a compliance roadmap. It's going to have seven actionable steps to go over to ensure compliance by the effective date. So keep in mind that if you need that refresher after this webinar, you will have a, a webinar invite from our Bolton team to attend a webinar December 6th to go over that in more detail. And then Fisher Phillips also let me know they're hosting a separate webinar to address paid data reporting. <clears throat> so be on the lookout for that invite from Fisher Phillips. So essentially, I'm just going to summarize, you're going to have two more additional opportunities in the next month to learn about paid data reporting and to have a refresher and a compliance roadmap before January 1. And today's webinar, we're really focusing on, you know, looking at this from a holistic perspective with our two guest speakers. If you don't see the invites for those two additional webinar opportunities, feel free to email me at askmichelle, and I'm happy to email those to you as I get them. It'll be next week or two. All right, so I've said all of that, and I am going to step aside. We have um, California's new pay transparency law. That's what we're talking about today, ready or not. And I'm going to turn this over to Kathy, who's going to get us started. Excellent. Thanks so much, Michelle, for the great introduction. And thank you to Bolton for setting up this webinar on such an important and timely topic. So our uh, agenda for the session includes why is this new law so important? We're going to provide you with an overview of what the legal requirements are. So essentially, what do you really need to know? We'll cover some potential implications and the employer liabilities that exist as a result of these changes. And then we'll share some best practices and recommended next steps in terms of actions for you to take as you start on your paid transparency journey. So of course we'll open it up for FAQs, but Michelle has been kind enough to share some questions in advance and I'm already seeing some things coming through in the questions section. I think we're gonna be able to answer those in the content. For whatever questions don't get answered, we can cover that in the Q&A section. So why is California's new paid transparency law so important? Companies around the world have been adopting pay transparency policies and practices for many years. And the goal is to really narrow the, the gender pay gap and foster an engaged and positive working environment that builds trust. You're going to hear the word trust throughout this, uh, this conversation. Most of your employees are coming to work for much more than money. Obviously, we all need to pay the bills. But People want more. They want an opportunity to grow, develop skills. They want to work on projects that are exciting and interesting. They want the workplace to be safe and comfortable. They want to work with people they like and they trust. So depending on the degree of transparency you currently have in your organization, perception becomes reality for your employees. Retention and engagement becomes an issue when your employees have the perception that their pay is not fair or competitive. 
Some research from about a year ago suggests that 57% of employees that are paid at market believe they are paid below market. So they're being paid at market, but their perception becomes reality. So many organizations do not have processes in place to address the pay equity concerns. So you are not in, if you're concerned, you're not uh, in in the, the minority, but believe us. But this new law aims to close those gaps and encourage transparency, transparency to really proactively address any pay disparities. And I think you're probably all aware this grew from the historical inequities for women and people of color. The most recent stat I read this week was that women are setting their minimum salary expectations between 7 and 20% lower than men. That's a concern. So the new pay transparency law provides organizations with an opportunity to really get your house in order, so to speak, in terms of compensation philosophy, framework, and communications. Once you have that in place, there will be a direct impact on engagement and retention, and it will help you to carve out a path to take as you work towards creating a more inclusive and positive organizational culture. So this new bill can be viewed as an annoyance, an obligation, and a checklist, more regulatory red tape. My guess is you're all feeling a little frustrated. <laughs> we understand that. However, there is another perspective that you can take. It can be viewed as an opportunity. You can proactively embrace pay transparency. 60% of employees say they would change jobs to work for a company with greater pay transparency. Think about that for a minute. 60% of your employees say they would change jobs to work for a company with greater pay transparency, not necessarily for greater pay, they just want to know why am I getting paid? You know, how am I getting paid? Why am I getting paid the way that I am? Communication is extremely important. They often don't know why they're getting paid the way they are, and they will share their salaries with others. And you know, you know the the challenges that creates. The best in class <laughs> companies take these issues head on. They communicate pay strategies clearly and describe why their deal, so to speak, is good for the workers. Your organization's approach to pay transparency will have a direct impact on the overall employee experience within your organization. It impacts your employment brand, retention, diversity, inclusion, and it really should be tied to your overall company strategy. So are you going to lean towards the previous slide of frustration and checklist? <laughs> Or are you going to embrace this as an opportunity to become a best-in-class employer? I'm going to hand it over to Larry to share some additional eye-opening statistics. Hi, folks, and thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Kathy. So, so kind of piggybacking on what Kathy just said, we wanted to share this slide with you. So we all know historically women have been paid less than men. This slide from HR Magazine visually illustrates this as well as the impact of race. And, you know, of course, the intention of SB 1162 is to narrow these historical pay gaps. So this is the part where you probably want to take three Tylenol, so we're going to get into the legislative requirements. So 
1162 is new, and there are certainly some confusing aspects to this law that need to be nailed down. That being the case, we put together this matrix to highlight the three major legislative requirements for California employers. And these are pay disclosure, record keeping, and reporting of pay data. So let's look at these requirements, uh, actually starting with the second row, the row that says employers with 15 to 99 employees. And then we'll, we'll address the one on top momentarily. So with respect to this size group, for any jobs they post, internally or externally, they need to disclose the hourly or salary pay range, which represents what they reasonably expect to pay for these positions. And there's a lot of, a lot of confusion around pay ranges, and we'll discuss this in a little bit more detail in the next slide. This particular requirement extends to job postings published by third by a third party at the employer's request. Applicants, after an, app, after an external applicant had completed an initial interview for a position, employers had been required to provide the position's hourly or salary pay range upon the applicant's request. Now, beginning in January, any applicant is entitled to this information upon reasonable request. Employers. Employers must also share this pay scale information with current employees occupying the same position upon the employee's request. However, beginning also in January, the above disclosures to employees and applicants will now apply to any size, even the very smallest employers. So even if it's a startup with one employee looking to hire the second employee, this would now apply. Employers of 15 plus employees are required to track and maintain records of employee titles and pay history for the duration of their employment plus three years. Okay, let's now take a look at four employers with 100 or more employees. With respect to this group, all the above provisions apply. So employers with 100 employees with at least one employee residing in or assigned to California, including remote workers, will also need to submit pay data reports on their number of employees by race, ethnicity, and sex by position within 10 distinct job categories. This is a little bit different. This amends SB 973 by eliminating the need to have separate and consolidated facility reports. Now going forward, uh, it's just gonna be separate reports for each facility, number one. And then number two, the additional change is the need to incorporate mean and median pay rates by position groupings. The first deadline for these reports is May 10th, of 2023, and we'll discuss this in greater detail. This law also addresses contractors. So employers who have retained at least 100 individuals through labor contractors during the prior year, for instance, starting in 2022, must produce the pay data 
outlined above for those individuals if they were performing labor within the employer's usual course of business. So the purpose here, of course, is to highlight the pay differences between employees and contractors retained through third parties. The contractor will then be required to provide the pay data and associated record keeping to the employer. Mary, hi. We have a question that I wanted to, to address because I think it's relevant to this slide we're speaking to. And um, Someone had asked if uh, this applies to organizations who are not required to file an EEO-1. Um, I believe I said that right, and I see it. And, I mean, the pay scale disclosure is just sort of a separate animal. So that requirement, um, the EEO-1 reporting has, has no relevance on the pay scale disclosure. But how about for the pay data reporting? That's a very interesting question, and uh, we actually went to the CRD, the agency, to ask for more clarification. We're told that we would get an answer within five working days. It's been 10 so far, so unfortunately, we didn't get clarity. <laughs> Our understanding is that this is going to apply to all employees and to all employers. Um, many of you have been for pay data reporting. Yes, for pay data reporting. All right, got it. So it sounds like, um, just for the person who asked the question, with regards to pay scale disclosure, the EEO-1 report has no relevance, and it's a little bit unclear with the pay, the pay data reporting whether or not that would apply. So we need to watch out for more guidance uh, from the agency. So we'll need to get back to you on that. All right, we are, thanks, Larry. And, and I'll move to the next one. Yeah, and I guess just to, to piggyback on that, we are going to leave you with some resources and you'll see how to file these reports, but we are waiting for greater clarity on that. So thank you for Thanks for that question. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of uh, interest and anxiety around pay, uh, pay scale disclosure. So the disclosure of pay ranges applies to job postings, to applicants, and to current employees. So again, pay ranges represent what employees, and this is really key, what employers reasonably expect to pay for positions. Currently in California, this only requires the disclosure of hourly and salary ranges. However, there's nothing to preclude California employers from also including additional information on other components of total rewards, such as bonuses, commissions, benefits, and culture, such as what is already required in Colorado. So when you think about it, um, there's some interesting things going on, and we expect more and more transparency. One individual mentioned the other day that they think that, uh, you know, when you think about individuals reading Zillow listings, uh, you know, pertaining to real estate, that that interest may be replaced to people looking at the WAN ads to just see all of this additional information. So let's talk a little bit about the ranges. Ranges, when people have pay structures, ranges typically include a minimum midpoint, and a maximum pay level. However, a significant percentage of employers, and I'd say uh, we've, let's say, worked with 1,100 or so different organizations, almost all of the ones we've talked about say we want to pay at the 50th percentile. And some of them 
have even uh, put in guidelines that require executive approval for paying over the midpoint. So we need to remember that in looking at setting these pay ranges, you really want to be strategic. There's a lot of things you got to think about. Uh, the fact that other companies are going to look at, at what you're posting, your own employees are going to see this, the government's going to see this. And additionally, you know, we'd be naive to think that our own employees do not discuss their pay with their counterparts. So this is especially, this is an especially good time to ensure that our compensation programs are not only competitive, but also internally equitable and fair. So we talked a little about record keeping. As stated before, employers with 15 plus employees are required to track and maintain records of employee titles and pay history for the duration of their employment plus an additional three years. These records must be made available to the labor commissioner for inspection on, on request to determine if there's a pattern of wage discrepancy. And an employer's failure to keep these records creates what's termed a rebuttable presumption in favor of an employee's claim. It, it seems like a good time to just clarify that there, there have been a few questions in the chat and also we had a few questions in advance who said, okay, so if someone was hired in 2013, am I, do I need to go back and retroactively get together these records or you know, when does it start? Uh, so the, the official question we just got in the chat box is for record keeping of job title and wage history, is it retroactive for current employees or only from 123 onwards? And the question we got from our partner at Fisher Phillips is that they are interpreting this to be from 123 and onward, so not retroactive. Of course, we are welcoming any guidance that uh, the DLSE or the CRD would release to us, but at this time, based on an attorney's answer Fisher Phillips, we are um, going on the basis that it is from 123 onwards. Yeah, and that makes sense because where do you draw the line? Is it 2022? Is it 2014? So that makes perfect sense. But again, we are we are all waiting more guidance. Um, so let's take a look at pay data reporting. So SB 1162 significantly amends prior legislation, SB 973, the annual pay data report requirements. So under this, employers with 100 employees or more must file an annual report with the CRD, which stands for the Civil Rights Department, that discloses certain pay data according to race, ethnicity, and gender within each of the following job categories, executive or senior level officials and managers, uh, first or mid-level officials and managers, professionals, technicians, sales workers, administrative support workers, craft workers, operatives, laborers, and helpers and service workers. And you know when you'll, you'll see the login instruction, you'll see, you know, you'll get guidance on how to address this. The following information must be disclosed by race, ethnicity, and gender with the above 10 categories. And within, within each of the above JAP categories, for each combination, 
combination of race, ethnicity, and gender, the mean and median hourly rate using W-2s at a particular point of time is going to be required. So this is new. I mean, many of you have already filed these types of reports, but again, you now have to do one of these for each separate facility, and you now have to incorporate the mean and median hourly rate. So a lot of questions come up about, okay, what is the time here? So from what we've seen so far, you have some flexibility. You just have to pick a certain time during the year, let's say the second week of October, and freeze things then to take a look at, at you know, what this looks like for your current employee workforce. Now, that's number one. Number two, the number of employees by race, ethnicity, and gender whose annual earnings fall within each of the pay bands used by the Occupational Employee Statistics Survey using W-2s. My guess is the reason to use W-2s is is when you're looking at people that work for you during a year, some some of them will have been there the whole year. Some of them may have been hired in July, some in October, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's the next requirement. Third, the, num the total number of hours worked by each employee counted in each pay band during the reporting year. And again, I think that goes back to people that may not have may not be working, uh, may not have been working with you during the whole year. And then for covered employers with multiple establishments, there must be a separate report with this pay date above covers each establishment. Again, uh, before this, employers submitting this data were allowed to consolidate. Now the requirement is there must be a separate report for each establishment. Lastly, staffing companies are also included. So private employers with 100 or more employees hired through labor contractors in the prior year must su submit a separate pay data report covering labor contractors. There's a little confusion about that, so let me just read this to you. The law defines a labor contractor as, quote, an individual or entity that supplies either with or without a contract, a client employer with workers to perform labor within the client employer's usual course of business. The legislator, legislature included staffing companies and labor contractors in this bill under the assumption that use of contractors is on the rise and that contract workers provide the same services as directly hired employees, but are typically paid less. So as a result, SB 1162 also requires the gathering and reporting of data for this category of workers. All right, Kathy. Great, thank you. All right, so potential employer liability. Uh, there's obviously some financial uh, implications and you may look at this and say, well, that, you know, that's not too bad. Uh, and depending on how many employees you have, it might not be that bad, but I don't think that's necessarily the point here. The point here is, yeah, do you want to comply and do you want to avoid these potential fines? Absolutely. It's really the reputational risks that we're most concerned about for our clients. So if you 
are involved in recruitment, which I'm sure the majority of you are, you know that workers do a lot of research on your organization before they even apply as they're interviewing, before they accept an offer. They want to, they're going to, now that they know about all of this, they're going to ensure that your pay transparency practices are authentic. And so you're going to have to take an approach regardless of whether annual pay reports are publicly available or not, you're going to want to make the assumption that your practices and degree of equality could potentially be exposed. So we, uh, Larry and I were kind of kidding around that uh, one day uh, it said they're going to publish, the state will publish on a website, the annual pay reports. And then a couple of days later, something came out and said, oh, something about a deadline and, and um, now they may publish them. So at this point, we're not quite sure, but our recommendation is to assume that that's going to happen. And regardless, social media. You know, information is out there and people within your organization will talk to one another and they're going to compare their salaries against pay scales that are captured on job postings, et cetera. So that's just a reality that we all need to accept. And I would say, you know, for those of you who are familiar with uh, the cases with the BBC and Google from back in 2017, which are just being resolved now, if that those reputational damages that they experienced, and those are large organizations, we get that, but it can have a significant impact on your brand. Not to mention EEOC claims are a possibility and any employee relations issues that could inevitably surface as a result of real or perceived inequality. There could potentially be direct financial and reputational implications of pay transparency. However, it's the less than obvious impacts that we all need to be aware of and, and do our best to address proactively. So the ultimate goal here is pay equity across your organization, which in turn creates greater engagement and retention. And we've been receiving some questions about you know, the impacts of uh, pay transparency on retention. So as we're traveling along this journey from today through to January 1st, 2023 and beyond, how will this impact your current employees? Your, all, your entire population could potentially be distracted. They could be worried about how this will affect their own pay, the pay of their colleagues, the organization, what that's going to look like. And depending on your communications plan, they may start to explore other options. Uh, at minimum, lack of productivity. So you can do the numbers on that. And then turnover and those associated costs, they're a potential reality as well. So bake that into potential financial um, liability. Managers, so all your people managers and supervisors, you're going to be making decisions at the leadership level how you're going to address pay transparency. However, once it is pushed out, it is the people, managers and supervisors that are left as the first point of contact. So they're going to be stressed. You know, They're going to be the ones who have to answer questions, deal with disgruntled employees or just tons of questions that they may not feel prepared to answer. They're going you know, to have to answer questions around visible pay differentials and responding to requests for raises potentially. If you bring your 
people managers and supervisors along the journey with you, share in the decision-making process, train them to understand why they're being paid, what they're being paid, and instill in them that you're doing the right things for the right reasons, that will certainly help reduce liability. And as you all know, any change equals anxiety. So, um, you know, the more open you are, that will build more trust. There's that word again. So how do we develop the proper pay scales in our organization? The more holistic of an approach that you take to this new bill, the better the outcomes will be. So simply ticking boxes to comply, that is not going to set you up for uh, a sustainable solution. So you need the right frameworks and processes in place, and you need to ensure that you create a compensation philosophy that your C-suite can be on board with. That's where it needs to start. So align it to your organizational values and your culture and communicate it to your employees uh, and share information along the way. Without a doubt, you are absolutely going to need to partner with an expert in compensation. You need to ensure that you have someone that has access to the right tools and resources. As you're going through and conducting a comprehensive analysis, you need the right benchmarking data. I'm sure there's some uh, incredible HR folks online, and I've been in HR pretty much my entire career, uh, but I would always partner with a compensation expert. That's why they're the experts. So when you go through this analysis, we suggest that you share findings with your with your employees. You don't have to get into the nitty gritty details. Of course, that's, that's not appropriate. But helping them to see the journey that you're on, bringing them along, what are your goals? How do you plan on achieving those goals for uh, pay transparency? Just be honest. Celebrate any successes. Bring them along the journey. So what can we do to fix our existing pay equity issues prior to January 1? Do the internal analysis. As Larry had said, the lens is race, ethnicity, and sex. Review, assess the gaps, and there may, there may be some uh, adjustments that need to be made immediately. Fix those and create a plan to make any other adjustments as you need to. Setting proper salary ranges is one of the best ways to ensure that your organization isn't just ticking boxes. And I know some of you are saying, we don't need salary ranges. And, and, you know, I would reconsider that because you need to develop a sustainable solution that becomes part of your business as usual processes and kind of business practices. Your employees are going to want to see you taking action and making changes that really demonstrate your commitment to being more transparent and creating that pay equality. Taking all these steps will reduce your potential liability and help you to stay more competitive. So let's go to the next steps and we'll just summarize really quickly some of those, um, you know, actions that you can take right away. All right. Conduct a pay equity audit, develop your salary ranges and feel confident in the data before you post anything. Communicate, communicate, communicate. Cannot say that enough. Get leadership on the same page. Bring everyone along the journey with you. People managers, HR, talent acquisition, your employee population. If you create a really smart change in communications plan, that will make your lives a heck of a lot easier. Be sure to engage with compliance, legal, finance, HR. And if you have a DEI representative, bring them in, of course. If you don't have one, 
think about identifying one. Develop processes to manage reporting, publishing, and storing the relevant data um, in order to you know, obviously meet those legal requirements. So Larry, over to you for some final thoughts. Very nice, thank you, Kathy. So obviously this, uh, this is a very controversial law and there's been a lot of resistance to this new pay legislation, including initial resistance, believe it or not, from, sure, from the Society of Human Resources Management. However, in taking the long view, many experts believe, as we're sure most of you do, that building more inclusive cultures is, is good business. This slide, which comes from Deloitte, indicates that those organizations with more inclusive cultures are two times more likely to meet or exceed financial targets, six times more likely to be innovative and agile, three times more likely to be high-performing, and eight times more likely to achieve better business outcomes. Right. So we have some FAQs. So Larry's going to take the, um, the first three. So do you want to just answer those ones, Larry, under the compensation? Yeah, we have quite a few. Yeah, sure. We've got quite a few questions that came in. So let's quickly go through these. So what should we do? What should we do if we do not yet have a formal pay structure? Okay. So although formal structure is not yet required by SB 1162, we recommend that employers develop appropriate structures and as Kathy mentioned, train the managers and employees on, not on, on the spirit and the workings of their specific compensation plan. What should we consider before communicating our pay ranges? Okay, we would recommend that employers conduct pay equity audit first to identify any potential disparities so that these can be corrected prior to formal posting and reporting. Next, how transparent should we be within our compensation program? So once any pay inequities have been addressed, we recommend, again, as Kathy was alluding to, being as transparent as appropriate to ensure that managers and their employees understand why they are paid, what they are paid. Uh, does any part of this law? Let's see, is this here's Does any part of this law apply to organizations with less than 15 employees? Yes, a California employer now of any size. Well, now I mean January must be prepared to provide the pay range for a given position if asked by an employee currently occupying the position or an external applicant interested in the pay for a given position. So in terms of like addressing pay gaps, so we talked about that quite a bit. Um, really, really important to get a team together. So pull together a committee with uh, finance, legal, compliance, uh, HR, and DE&I. Get, get that team together and, and start working through a plan. And to what extent will this create engagement and uh, retention issues? The more open and transparent you are about this pay transparency approach, the better. So that is the ultimate goal. Create uh, equality across your organization when it comes to pay. That will in turn enhance engagement and retention. If you don't take an open approach, if you just tick boxes, you will potentially have some significant issues when it comes to engagement and retention. People will start to look. And then in terms of, you know, what can we expect for the future pay transparency trends? Guess what? This is not going away. 
as the younger generation, so millennials, Gen Z become the majority representation in, um, in the workforce, they're just going to keep expecting and uh, demanding more. They want equality. They want to be paid fairly for the work that they're doing. And they want their colleagues to be paid fairly as well. It's a lot different than when a lot of us started where it was just a big, big black hole <laughs> around compensation. They want to know. They want more information. So this is not going away. And that's why we recommend you know, putting the, all the right frameworks in place so that this just becomes a lot easier for all of you uh, in the future. So next question. Does any part of this law apply to organizations with less than 15 employees? And again, we mentioned that come January, a California employer of any size must be prepared to provide the pay range for a given position if asked by an employee currently occupying the position or an external applicant interested in the pay for a given position. Does SB 1162 apply to employers outside of California? It applies to employers outside of California if they have at least one employee working physically or remotely in California. And lastly, can employees request pay information for other positions within their own organizations? This is currently not required by SB 1162, although many employers uh, do and have been for decades providing this level of transparency. All right. Well, you know, we have a lot of questions, as we assumed that we would, and I think some of them fall under the same category. And um, having said that, I'm going to go over a few questions here, um, and I'm going to start with one that asks, what are the penalties for not posting pay information? And in a previous slide, you saw that it's $100 to 10000 so let me say this first, and I think that overall, you know, when we, Camayo's Compliance Talk and Ask Michelle, it's really about discussing, discussing what's unclear, because if something in the law is written and it's very clear, you know, it doesn't really need to be much of a discussion. It's where, you know, politicians write up bills and then they and then they share it with the public and we're all like, wait a minute, you could interpret this many ways or you simply, we don't have the guidance for all those unspoken questions. And for the first violation, the no penalty would be assessed upon demonstration of an employer that all job postings had been updated. So when we're talking about pay scale transparency, it's not necessarily the penalty or the threat of being in compliance on day one, which would be January 1, 2023. I think that, you know, as an employer, that's not your, your biggest threat isn't the monetary penalty because you will have time on the first violation, you will have time to come into compliance without having uh, any penalty incurred, which is a good thing. So it's really more about Kathy and Larry saying it's sort of the spirit of the law, to embrace that spirit of the law because this isn't going away. And I think as we look at being compliant, not only do we look at, you know, okay, I need to do this, this, and this, but it's also, you know, what else might you need to do first or after to, to comply with the spirit of the law? And, and there's so many good reasons for doing that. Um, 
We also had a question, how does this work with multiple sites outside of California? And it's with regard to pay scale transparency. And when we were listening to Fisher Phillips, and um, most of you know that Nicole Cam and I have a relationship, and um, she's very good at helping us understand legislation, or at least she tells us what their take is over at Fisher Phillips. The, the take that we're seeing most by practitioners is if, if the position can be filled by a California worker, pay transparency is going to apply. So we did have a question in the chat box. What, and the question was, what if we have a job listing and it's not for California, but we end up hiring someone in California? What do we do? Well, I would back up and say, and what I heard Fisher Phillips say is that if you have a job posting and you do not want to list the pay scale and have that transparency, that it may be prudent to just say you need to exclude California um, employees in that job listing or California workers. Just you could say it right there in the job listing. And I was talking to someone who doesn't know this industry very well, and we were just talking about pay transparency. And he said, wait a minute, is that why I see some job postings say that it excludes California workers or New York workers, for example? And I said, well, that's probably not the reason right now, uh, but it may be the reason you see it in the future. And his response was, my brother, uh, it was actually my brother, he said, wait a minute, that, that doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good for, for someone to exclude California workers simply so they can, you know, um, not comply with the pay transparency rules. So that's definitely, definitely worth thinking about these broader implications and, and viewing this from a holistic standpoint. Michelle, we also received a question about whether uh, there should be mention of this law in the employee handbook. And, you know, our recommendation is, yeah, Yes, of course. You know why? Why not? <laughs> but as you're carving out your comp philosophy, we absolutely recommend that you include pay transparency in your employee handbook. Not only will it provide employees with guidance on what information they actually have a legal right to know, but it will highlight your company's commitment to creating that equitable pay environment that you're you're working to achieve. So, um, and you know, it'll also be important to add language in there around you know that you're working towards creating a culture grounded in inclusivity. So absolutely, yes. Um, add it to your handbook, for sure. Yes, and I thought there was another question that was interesting and, and that we received that would be meaningful, you know, to more than one of our attendees is um, someone had asked, should hard-to-fill locations be carved out? And they gave an example, a good example, that I'm sure applies to many employers. They have a front office rep receptionist range, but for a particular city, the range is typically higher because it's hard to fill location. And the person asks, should the ranges be broken out by city or is it okay to exclude the higher wage from the provided pay range? And Larry, did you want to um, take that answer? Yeah, I think it's, uh, can you want to do the right thing? So. You could, if you're posting it for a specific location, then you should put the reasonable range, you know, for that location. But the impression I had of, of thinking about that question is the position could be filled uh, by people in other locations. 
So let's say you're looking at, you know, you have a position in, in uh, Los Angeles, but it could be filled by somebody in New York, you know. You could extend the range. You know, again, I think this is what we're all going to be struggling with is, is the range guidelines, you know. So, again, you have to think about what's reasonable to pay somebody. But if you're not sure about where that person is going to come from, you could uh, either post separately for each location or you could reasonably extend the range so that you're covered there. Yes, thank you for that. So, so really, there could be more than one answer here. I mean, if you want to post separately for each of the various locations and, and you know, various locations that may be um, geographic, you can bundle there or you can just do a broader range. And it is helpful to know and to keep in mind that as you come up with the pay scale ranges or you think about adding these and what your strategy is, that there's no law. The law doesn't say that you have to stick with what you've written. So if you've got a range that you realistically expect to pay, and let's say that range is between 80,000 80, and 120, as, as an example. So if that's your range... But then you hire someone you find and they're very well qualified and you just need, you know, you feel like this is the person you need in that role and you end up paying them 140. There's, that's okay. That is okay. It, so what, what you reasonably expect to pay, you're not, uh, that's not what you have to end up paying, if that makes sense. So, so keep that in mind as well. I did have a question about um, ranges, or we got a lot of questions about ranges, definitely. So um, we had an employer say that we distinguish between our ranges, which are market-based, and are set at common benchmark points. So maybe, you know, 20th and 80th percentile of market data uh, for minimum and maximum versus a target pay for a role. So they're using, you know, that benchmark instead of a target pay for a role. For purposes of this legislation, they, the question is, can target pay be considered a range? For example, if a role has a market-based range of 1 to 180, and we target 120 to 140, does 120 to 140 qualify as a range for the role? And the answer is yes. Absolutely yes. I mean, really it comes down to what is the position reasonably expected to pay? And it sounds like this um, particular employer reasonably expects to pay between 120 and 140, even though uh, the target pay may be different or the market-based range may be different. So, it, you know, we can answer a lot of questions about pay range with, do you think this is what the position is reasonably expected to pay? And if the answer is yes, then that would absolutely qualify and be within the compliance, you know, requirements. All right, Kathy, Larry, do you see any questions in the chat box that, or the questions box that you would like to address? Uh, Natalia has a question. I was just trying to answer it in the chat. Um, we are state-funded program. Most positions are hourly-based. Could we post hourly rate based on funding increases? So uh, I think this just goes, Natalia, back to what Michelle was saying. If those hourly rates are what you reasonably expect to pay, then yes, that's fine. And I, and I, I mean, Larry you, and Michelle, if, if you have any additional information on that, you know, d does, is there a range or, but if you're expecting to pay, you know, $25 an hour, then, then that's, 
that's what you would post, I presume. Yes, exactly. Yes. That's a great take on that. I mean, for, and sometimes there's not even a range. Sometimes um, we have employers who say we're hiring at $18 and that there's no range. So what do I put if there's no range? And um, without guidance right now, the interpretation is that you would simply put the fixed rate that you, that you would expect to pay, which would be the 18. Now, then you might say, well, what if we kind of veer off and we find the right candidate and now all of a sudden it's not a fixed rate and we decide to pay $20 an hour instead of 18. Yep. Then what happens? Will I be penalized? The answer is no, you will not be penalized. You're not stuck to what is in writing. You're not, there's nothing in the law that requires you to, to um, extend or stay within those bounds, if you will. Michelle, I, I know people will need to sign off, so I'm wondering if we should just share that last page, you know, additional yes, resources. That is on, yes, thanks, Barry. That is on the screen here. Uh, we have some additional resources for you, some helpful links. When you get a copy of the PowerPoint slides, these are hyperlinks uh, to make it as easy as possible on you. I already had someone ask, where do we submit the pay data reporting? And here's the link to that on the far right, that portal right there. And there's even a portal user guide link um, and facts about the pay data reporting and then the actual pay data reporting page. So hopefully those will be helpful to you. Uh, we got a lot of questions about the pay data reporting. And in the interest of time, we won't be answering those. But please do know that everything we know is out there on the, the facts link that you see on the screen right now. So you can go right over to the CRD FAQs on this topic and everything we know is there. And Fisher Phillips will be doing their own webinar that is focusing uh, on pay data reporting only. So please watch out for that invite in the next week or two because um, that will ensure that you have another opportunity to hear more context around the pay data reporting. Okay, and then I have uh, maybe just a few things I might be, uh, I can address before we um, end the webinar here. A lot of pay data, pay data reporting questions. You will have opportunities to learn more about that, and we've included links so that you can uh, view all there is to know about that thus far. Okay, it looks like we covered most, if not all, the questions. If I find that we um, accidentally skipped over your question, I will send you an email with the answer to your question. It's important to me that you have your specific questions answered. So if you posed one and you didn't get an answer, I, you will be hearing from me via email. Um, and really, just before we, we sign off, please know you'll get a recording, you'll get a link to the recording and a copy of the PowerPoint slides and the post-webinar email. That will likely be sent later this afternoon or tomorrow morning, so watch out for that one. And uh, also, if you have questions, that you're feel free to, to um, use my email address here in this last slide. You also have Larry and Kathy's email address, but you can email me at askmichelle at bolsonco.com, and I'm happy to follow up with you via email. Our goal is really to ensure that 
you know, you're approaching this from a holistic viewpoint and not just from, okay, I need to be compliant, so I need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, because the compliance part at the end of the day is um, something that is probably the easier. <laughs> the easier, uh, it's really the, the broader implications that are um, creating issues around this. And of course, we are waiting on the DLSE to release more guidance and more FAQs on the pay scale disclosure portion of the law. Because the FAQs on the pay data reporting are already out, and we've included those links as well. Hey, Kathy and Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, hoping that um, our audience found this helpful. I think that they did. And if they have any questions about engaging, you know, Kathy or Larry engaging you in services, are they free to email you at the email addresses we have on the screen? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Okay, great. Wonderful. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening today and tuning in. If you have any questions, just let me know. Otherwise, I will talk to you again in December for my next compliance talk. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you.